0: today, uh, as we continue our series, you know, one of the things I think we all know is that songs are very, very powerful. And and songs many times are written from a a place of of deep emotion. Think about Harry Chapin's song, Cats in the Cradle. It's really an anthem song for many dads, right? Uh, the, The neat thing about this song, or the sad part of this song, is it was written by his wife, Sandy. It was a poem that she wrote describing the relationship that she had with her father. And so Harry comes in and takes that poem and puts music to it, and it becomes this incredibly powerful, powerful song. The sad part about the song, though, is that that actually became Harry's life. The song was so popular, he was traveling all over the place. Sandy was saying, please stay home with us. Please stay home with the kids. He said, I will once everything slows down. He ended up being killed in a car accident on Long Island. So he lived out that song in his life. There's emotion behind that. Or Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. Very powerful song. But it was written from a place of hurt. His son, who was four years old, fell from the 53rd floor of a building in New York City and died. This song that that many of us know by heart, and you hear me say that title, and you're already starting to sing it in your head, comes from a place of deep passion and emotion and hurt. When we think about songs, there's something about them that can move us, especially when they come from another person's pain and the burden that they carry. Today, as we continue our series called Mixed Tape, we're going to look at a psalm this morning that comes from a place just like that, deep pain and deep emotion. Before we get there, let me give you a recap if you haven't been here. This series called Mixed Tape. It is um, based on the book of Psalms. One of the things that we've said is that back in the day, for some of us a little bit older, we used to make our own mixtapes with our, our boom box and our tape recorders, and it took us forever to do it. But you, you put these songs and you put these lists together because it's just music you loved, and in some way it connected with you for an emotion that you were experiencing, that, that you wanted to experience. And so we would listen to those songs. Now we put them on our phones and our playlists. It takes us about five seconds to do that. But we've got these incredible playlists of songs that we listen to, just because they connect with us, many times, in an emotional way the series on mixtape really is more than that because it's about god's mixtape for us again it's the book of psalms 150 songs written over the course of about 900 years really the songs of the israelites and if you look at these songs they're all coming from some place of emotion sometimes it's joy and celebration and sometimes there's pain and hurt The one that we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 51. You can turn there if you want to, if you've got a Bible. We're going to get there in just a second. We're going to look at something else first. But Psalm 51 is one of seven penitential songs. These are songs that were written that were really just confessions of of sin. That there was this sorrow that had been built up because of a sin that had been committed. And so the song was written for that purpose. And Psalm 51 is written by King David in a very, very dark time in his life. Probably the darkest moments of his life. And so for us to really understand Psalm 51, like many times to understand a specific song, we kind of got to look at the context. Where is the song coming from? So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 1st. Second Samuel chapter twelve, because we get an idea of why this song was written by King David. Second Samuel chapter twelve. If you've got a Bible, turn there. If not, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Feel free to pull one of those open. Can we up the lights in the auditorium a little bit so people can actually read? Um, we're going to put it up here on the screen. You can follow along on your Journey Church app or also on your program today. But here we go. Second Samuel chapter twelve, verse seven. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. Now, before I keep going, this isn't a golf tournament, you're the man type thing, all right? This is very different. This is the negative, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. This guy named Nathan stops in. He's a prophet. His job really is to tell the people of Israel, you're terrible people, and this is what God wants you to do to get back on on the right path. But he would spend a lot of time with the king, and so this was an advisor really to the king on spiritual issues. And so we have Nathan, who is this advisor to King David. He comes in one day. He's like, David, we need to talk. And so he, he talks about this elaborate event moments that had happened in David's life we're going to talk about those in a second and he comes in and says hey you've messed up but but here's the reminder he says God has given you all this stuff God's delivered you God's anointed you you could have even had more if you'd asked for it but but God's kind of wondering David why have you repaid him in this way well why does God ask that question what has happened look at verse 9 it says, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. If we go back to Second Samuel chapter 11, we read the story of what took place. David is a warrior king. I mean, if you were a king in those days, more than likely you were a warrior. You were a general. You were a battler. You, you knew how to set things up, and that's why you ended up in that place. He's a warrior king. As we find out in 2 Samuel 11, he's supposed to be at war. This was a war time. Winter was over with. The spring was there. Everybody was antsy. Everybody was ready to go out and protect themselves or to, to gain more, more of the, the countries around them, to, to have more people to follow them. And so David's supposed to be doing that. He's at home. He's hanging out, he's walking around his palace, he's bored, and so he's got a lot of pent-up energy and emotion. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And so he's out there on his palace balcony one day, and he looks out, and he sees this woman. She's naked, she's bathing, she's actually purifying herself. I won't go into details there, but she's taking care of herself, and and David sees her. David goes to some of his attendants, more than likely military kind of guys, like, hey, go bring her to me. Bathsheba doesn't have an option in that culture. If the king calls, you either go or you die. And so she says, okay, I'll go to the king. And so Bathsheba shows up at the palace where David is. Sometimes it says it was adultery. Some people believe it was sexual assault or rape. We can always kind of debate what happened here. But whatever whatever the case was, she, she had to go. Bathsheba's there. Of course, they interact with each other, and she gets pregnant. David's got to cover this up. And so he calls her husband and Uriah. Uriah is one of David's greatest warriors, one of his best warriors he has. But Uriah is a fighter. He's a battler. He's at war. And all of a sudden the king calls him, and guess what? He didn't have an option. He's got to go. And so he goes, and David sets him down and says, hey, Uriah, tell me what's happening on the battlefield. So Uriah begins to describe everything that's going on. David's listening, but he's not really because he's got a plan in place. And when Uriah finishes, he's like, hey, you know what, Uriah, you've been working hard. On the battlefield, why don't you go home and be with your wife? Uriah leaves, but the next morning they wake up, and Uriah's sitting there at the gate of the city. He didn't go home. The same thing happens a couple more times, and finally David's like, i got to do something else because i got to cover up what I did. And so he brings Uriah in. They throw a big party, big bash, gets Uriah drunk. He thinks, now I've got Uriah. I'm going to send him home. Everything's going to be fine. He says, Uriah, go home. Spend time with your wife. Uriah... The next morning is found at the gate again. Some of you understand this. You're in the military. You were in the military. You experienced this. It's hard for you to be back home when you know your buddies, the people that you fight right beside all the time, are somewhere else, and they're battling. Uriah is that kind of warrior. He's thinking about his guys that he's supposed to be fighting beside and battling beside, and he's not. He's back where the king has invited him to be. He doesn't want to be there. He wants to be with them. He understands his duties. He's like, if I can't experience or they can't experience what I'm experiencing, then I don't experience it myself. And so he never goes back home to be with his wife. David writes this letter, sends it to the general through Uriah. And this letter says, put Uriah in the fiercest battle. At the right moment, I want you to pull the troops away so Uriah will be killed. And that's exactly what happens. There's all kinds of things that David has done here. So when, when Nathan says, you are the man, there's a lot behind those few words. But then look and see what happens here in verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your house, own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, David, because of your sins, there are going to be consequences. There's going to be punishment that you're going to have to experience, and he lists them. And and it's funny because David's response is, you're right, I've sinned against God. And then here's what Nathan says in reply. In the verse 13, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Those words right there in 13, the end of 13, are so powerful to me because David says, I have sinned. And the first words that come out of Nathan's mouth are, the Lord has taken away your sin. David says, or or God says to Nathan, tell David he's free, that, that I've taken care of that sin for him because he's acknowledged what he has done. Now, he didn't follow God, so there was consequences. There was a punishment that he was going to have to face. And that punishment was the son that was born to Bathsheba was very sick. For seven days, David fasted. He mourned. He prayed. He cried out to God for help. The child dies. Again, these were the consequences of David's sin. Out of this, these moments and experiences in David's life. David writes Psalm 51. If you've got your Bible still open, you can turn to Psalm 51. We're not going to read the whole, um, the whole chapter here, the whole song. We're going to look at a couple of pieces of it. But this comes out of a place of deep emotion and pain for David. Psalm 51, starting with verse 1. It says, Have mercy, O me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for i know my transgressions and my sin is always before me david finally understands that he is capable of doing way more than he thought he was capable of doing if you look back in history british and american leaders at the time of the holocaust when they started to hear about what was happening in germany they didn't believe it in fact, FDR at the end of the war said the reason he didn't believe it, he just had a hard time thinking that, that a, a country like Germany, that this highly developed country who had brought us Mozart and Bach, that someone like this could commit genocide. He couldn't believe that somebody was capable of this. Or think for a moment, if you're watching the news, there's been a murder in a community. They always interview the neighbors. And neighbors tend to always say, I, I don't know what would have made this person snap. I don't know what took them to this moment where they did this horrible, horrible deed. Here's what the neighbor's actually saying. I'm not like them, right? Because I would never be capable of doing exactly what they just did. Not me. They're kind of protecting themselves in that moment for something terrible that's happened. I wondered about David here. Before he does all these things that we read about in 2 Samuel, I wonder if he kind of walked around like, I'm not going to be like them. I'm never going to do what they did. I'm not going to act like they acted. I'm not going to sin like they sinned because I'm under control. I'm not capable of doing what these individuals did. And yet, what do we find here with David? He's very capable of going beyond what he thought he could handle in his life. Begs the question, how well do we know ourselves? How well do we know ourselves? Maybe inside there's resentment and anger and bitterness envy jealousy pride and you you and i can look at ourselves and we can look deep inside and we think hey i got it under control though i'm good to go i'm never going to let it get beyond a healthy place in my life i'm not capable of doing what those other people have done you know an acorn where are my southerners at any southerners in here you don't say acorn. What do you say? Acorn. Thank you, acorn. <laughs> My parents used to always say, "Hey boys, stop throwing acorns at each other." So I grew up saying acorn. Of course, then I got cultured and moved to the Northeast, and it became acorn because <laughs> everybody made fun of me for saying acorn all the time. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina, so um, so yeah, you have acorns. And if you think about it for a moment, an acorn's actually a pretty good size seed. But but if you take that acorn and you put it in soil that is is perfect. It's perfect. It's ready for something to grow in it. And there's nutrients there, and there's water, and it gets a little bit of sunshine. That little acorn, that acorn, turns into this humongous, big oak tree. It's amazing if you really think about it. And, and depending on where you live here, if you live in Kingstown, there's no trees anymore. They wiped them all out. If you live towards Springfield and West, you know, there are trees all over the place. We've got big oak trees in, in, our, in our yard, and I look at those. I'm like, man, these things started from this little tiny acorn. We don't think about the seeds that are inside of us. I believe all of us have seeds inside of us, some sort of seed that is inside of us, whether it's what we just talked about, pride, envy, jealousy, whatever it is for you, but there's a seed inside of us. And if we're not careful and we water it and it gets a little nutrition, a little sunshine shines on it, that seed grows into this huge, big, powerful problem. I'm guessing David thought to himself, yeah, there's a couple of seeds there, but I'm not going to let them grow. I'm not capable of doing what other people have done. And yet what we find is David did just that. And what we find is that for you and I, sometimes we keep watering those seeds. We allow them to grow, and they become huge problems and issues in our lives. John Owen, a British theologian from the 17th century, said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. David didn't stop watering the seed. I'm afraid sometimes you and I, we don't stop watering the seed either. But that's the power behind Psalm 51. David recognizes that seed was there now. And that seed grew so big that all of these sins, and again, we can make a huge list of sins for David, that he, he allowed himself to become this person who did these horrible things to so many people that impacted so many lives because of that seed. Then here's what he says in verse 4. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you ju- judge. These are very interesting words from David because when we look here, what do we find in the store? If we go back to 2 Samuel, he hurt Bathsheba and Uriah. Bathsheba's family, Uriah's family, David's family, the whole nation. This was a royal scandal. David hurts all these people. And yet the first thing that he says here is, God, I've sinned fully against you and you alone. Now, there's a reason he says this. Because David understands, I allowed myself to get to this place. God was like, hey. David, if you do these things, you're going to be good. David, I've done all these things for you. I would have given you more if you had asked, but this is how you repay me. I've told you this is how you need to live your life. This is the kind of person you need to be. But, David, you didn't do that. You failed. And David understands that now. He's like, if I had followed God fully, I would have never gotten to this place. And so he goes to God and says, God, I sinned against you. That's where that sin began. That's where his experiences and these moments that he created in his life that he didn't have to. They all started there with that seed. They became something bigger. And David says, I did this because I am a sinner. Now, understand, as you read Psalm 51 here, David doesn't blame other people. He doesn't blame society. He doesn't blame circumstances. Uh, He doesn't blame playing too much Fortnite I mean, he doesn't blame these things in his life. He looks at himself, and he's like, you know what? God, you're right. I sinned because I am a sinner, which is different than us many times because when we get to a place like this, what do we do? We blame other people. We blame society. We blame the circumstances around us. We blame family members. David's like, no, it's all on me. And he reminds us of that here in verse 4. But then he says this in verse 7. He "Says cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. I always love those words there. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me." Ever thought about snowflake before? You know, when we're kids, we love snowflakes, and one of the things you learn is that every single snowflake is unique. But did you also know that every snowflake isn't just a pure water droplet or crystal? Snowflakes actually form when extremely cold water droplets freeze onto pollen or dust particles. And so it becomes this crystal, but there's this piece of dirt in, inside of it. And then as it's dropping through the air, all these other water crystals begin to connect, or water vapor begins to connect to that that beginning crystal. And then we have our six-armed snowflakes that you and I love to catch in our hands and look at as quickly as we can before they, they melt. See, if you think about it for a moment, a snowflake isn't pure, it starts out as dirt. It starts out as dust or pollen. And these other crystals begin to form around it. We have this beautiful creation. If we look at what David writes here in Psalm 51, it's amazing because he knows God has the ability to forgive his sins. That God takes David's dirt and his dust and his pollen particles and he creates and transforms David into something incredible and beautiful. Because God's bigger than David's sin. God's bigger than David's decisions. God's bigger than who David is. God's bigger than all the things that David's capable of doing and making happen. God's bigger than that. And so God takes David's dirt and transforms him into something beautiful. This is the place I think many of us struggle with God, though, because we look at our past, we look even at our present, and we think God can't forgive me because of what I've done. God can't forgive me because of who I am. I've done some terrible, horrible things. I would ask you to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and read what David did. I'm going to go on a limb here and say that nobody in this room has done what David did. He's done some pretty terrible things. And In fact, if you've done those, you're probably not in here. You're probably in prison somewhere. I mean, David's done some terrible, terrible things, so you're not quite on that level, okay? But one of the things that we have to do when we struggle with God and this whole forgiveness piece from God is, is we've got to acknowledge that what we've done the things that we've, we've done that have gone against what God wants for our life, those really are the first steps to forgiveness. It's just acknowledging that we've done that. David's at his lowest point. This is probably his lowest point in his life. But here's what he remembers. It goes back to last week. We read Psalm 139, and we talked about how God, David says, God is always with me. God surrounds me. In this moment, David still remembers the god is with him the god surrounds him he's broken david's got burden and he's hurt but god is present in there when you and i we struggle with god's forgiveness for what we've done in our life i think we have to come back to this and we've got to understand that god's god's waiting on us god's there to help God offers forgiveness. God offers hope. And David realizes this that even in all the horrible things he's done, God still has this incredible love for David. And that's why I love verse 10 there, which I wonder sometimes if that shouldn't be our prayer. Prayer, create in me a pure heart, O God. I mean, those are powerful words. Because you know what? The truth is, we're dirt. We're a dust particle. We're pollen. And what does God do? God jumps in. And God can make us whiter than snow. Can transform who we are. But to get to that place, I think that's the prayer we have to pray. God, create in me a clean heart. David understands this because of what David has done and where he's been and what he's experienced. As we look at Psalm 51 this morning, as we look back at what David did there in 2 Samuel, I think there's a couple of truths that we can pull from his story. The first one is pretty simple. We are sinful. We are sinful. Uh, If we don't get rid of those seeds, they they stay there. If we don't deal with those seeds, if we aren't killing those seeds, as, as John Owen said, then those seeds, they're going to stay in us. And at some point in time, we're going to actually find out what we are truly capable of. Now, it may not be to the level of David. I hope it never is. But, but it's those small things that we think are small that get bigger pretty quickly. And so we have to understand that we are sinful. And then understand and come to grips of that we are capable of doing way more than we think. We don't always realize that. And we can look at history and we can watch news footage and we can think, I'll never be like them. And you may not be ever like them. But, but my guess is that for each one of us, whatever that seed is, if we allow it to grow, it'll get to a place where it's a big old oak tree in our life. Whatever, again, that may be for us. Because we are sinful. So the question is, what seeds do we need to get rid of? Anger, bitterness, resentment, envy, jealousy, self-pity self-centeredness, self-loathing? Do we need to get rid of just that one more drink, one more click on that website, one more flirtation? Man, all of us got those seeds, but we've got to be killing those seeds or those seeds will kill us. But it begins by understanding that we are sinful. But then the second thing that we can learn, I think, from Psalm 51 is that we are absolutely loved. I go back to what, Nathan told David there in 2 Samuel, David says, I've sinned. And the first words out of Nathan's mouth are, the Lord has taken away your sin. God forgave David. He showed him grace. He showed him mercy. He said, David, there are going to be some consequences here. But I forgive you of everything that you have done. I'm going to show you what true love looks like in your life. How do we experience that? Absolute love. Well, I think there's three things that we can do, three next steps for us. The first one is this, and we've talked about this all morning acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge our sin, it's there. If you look at, um, or if you've been a part of AANASA, the very first thing says, admit that you're powerless. And I think we have to get to that point that we admit we're powerless. We've got to acknowledge that that sin is there and that seed has grown to such a, a size that we have no control over it anymore. And we have to acknowledge what we have done exactly like David does here in what we read this morning. Acknowledge our failure, acknowledge our sin. And then the second thing I would say is confess our sin, which means the people we've hurt, the groups of people that we've hurt, we've got to be willing to go to them and say, I am sorry. I, I now realize what I have done and who I am, and I need to ask for your forgiveness. That is such a hard conversation to have if you've ever been there before. But we got to be willing to do that, to confess our sins. And then we got to go to God and say, like, God, I'm sorry for what I've done to you. God, you, you said, hey, you do these things, you're going to be good. And yet, God, here's what I've done. I've said, hey, I'm going to do Chad's things, and I'm not good. We had to go to God and say, like, God, I'm sorry, I didn't follow you the way that I was supposed to. I didn't listen to you. I didn't live my life the right way. And now I'm paying for it, and I ask for your forgiveness. And I think like Nathan says here, God's like, you got it. You got it. Good to go. Mercy, grace, love, it's all yours. There might be some tough consequences from it. But besides that, I am fully here for you. I love what John writes in 1 John 1, 1.9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. God says, hey, you confess, I'm going to turn you into a beautiful snowflake. But you've got to be willing to take that step to do that. Now, sometimes we need a Nathan to jump into our life because we'll try to hide behind that sin. Sometimes we need a Nathan to jump in like, hey, <laughs> you're messing up. You're not living the life you're supposed to be living. Sometimes we need that to get us to this place of, confessing our sin but whatever it takes to do that we have to be willing to take that step and then lastly we got to let God restore you let God restore you that's the purpose behind Jesus in Romans chapter 3 Paul says for everyone has sinned; we all fall short of God's glorious standard yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins God didn't send Jesus to earth just for the heck of it. He sent Jesus to earth to save us from ourselves, from our decisions, from our choices, from the seeds that we were going to allow to just kind of grow inside of us. That's why Jesus was sent here, for you and for me, to save us from ourselves, to carry the burden of the sins that you and I commit in our lives. But the question for us is not, will God forgive me? But will I allow God to forgive me? Many people would carry that burden with them the the rest of their life. Never deal with it. Never let it go. Never ask for forgiveness. Because many times we're just too proud to do that. We're too proud to take that step. God's like, no, that's why Christ was sent. To carry that burden, to take that sin, to show you love, to show you this freedom that you have through me, through Christ. But it means we acknowledge it, we confess it, and then we let God restore you. Let God restore me. Here's the truth. You and I, we're God's restoration projects, every single one of us. And God's always going to be restoring us because we're always going to have those seeds that are part of us. And the truth is, each one of us, we're dirt. We're a dust particle. But God wants to create in us and make us into something beautiful to transform us. But to get to that place, we got to take these steps. But to get to that place, we got to understand we are absolutely and incredibly loved by God. David shares that with us here in Psalm 51. In fact, so many of, of David's songs, as we read through them, we see that that's the case. The question is, are we going to allow God to restore us? He restored David. David was said to be a man after God's own heart, and look what David did. Which means, this is the greatest part, you and I, we got a lot of hope. That God can do the same for us. That God can take our dirt and take our dust and to make it into something beautiful. Something clean, something pure. Again, to transform us into who God has created each one of us to be. David reminds us of that in this psalm. As we head into our communion time this morning, I want to read a part of the song, the chorus of the song we're getting ready to sing. Here's what it says. It says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. God's love for us is so incredible. We can't even understand it. It's so powerful that it's reckless to us because we cannot fathom this kind of love that God has. And yet God says, this is the love I have for you. And when you find yourself in situations like David, when that seed has grown into a tree, when, when you feel like you're just a huge pile of dirt, God's like, I can change that. I can transform it. I can forgive you. I can create you and make you into who I want you to be and who I've created you to be. You just got to listen to me and follow me. When we come together here at The Journey every week, we take communion as a church community, and it's a reminder of that love God has, that God didn't send Jesus just to write a book or to have something called Christianity begin. He did it for, for you and I to save us from who we are. And so as we take the bread, as we take the juice this morning, I pray that that's the thing that you hold on to. And maybe you feel like you know what those seeds are right now. Maybe today's the day you're like, hey, God, the seeds are yours. I'm done. It's time to move on. Or, or maybe your prayer is, God, I still struggle with something that I did in the past and I've never asked for forgiveness. Maybe today's the day you're like, all right, I need to do that. I need to take that step. Whatever it is, let God restore you. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe you're like, I just need to fully be cleansed. And we... Love to talk to you about that. You can fill out that connection card, mark baptism. We'll have that conversation with you because that is the ultimate cleansing of who we are. Or maybe today you just need prayer. Our prayer team will be back here in this back corner. And they would just love to pray for you this morning. And during our communion time, just go back there and let them pray over you. But my prayer for us today is that we find hope, that we find forgiveness through Christ, that we celebrate right now in this moment.